Welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy, your usual host for these things, and I want you to use your imagination for the next few minutes. I want you to pretend that you're an editor for some mountain bike website of some kind. Tomorrow, you're going to get on a plane to fly to the other side of the world where you'll ride exotic single track on a $10,000 mountain bike that the public probably won't even see for a few more months. And while you're there, you'll get to talk to the engineers who designed the bike and ask them all sorts of questions. Now, that doesn't sound half bad, does it? Of course not. But when it comes to press camps, there's a lot more to talk about than that. And that's exactly what today's podcast is all about. Later on in the show, we'll explain how press camps work, what it's like to go to them, why companies spend big bucks holding press camps, and whether or not the media should be going to press camps at all. We're also going to share some of our best press camp stories from huge crashes and injuries to edibles and laser shows at a bike launch to what happens when the bike that we traveled around the world to see breaks during the first media ride. That's definitely happened. I also want to hear what it's like from a bike company's perspective. So I've got Brian Park and Sarah Moore with me today, both of whom have organized press camps while working for bike brands. They probably have some nightmare or gong show stories to share with us today. But before we get into all that, Casimir, you and I have been to some pretty cool places. We've done some done some fun things at press camps over the years. Where's the most interesting press camp that you've been to? Uh, I've been to a lot of places, but one time I went to a island in the archipelago off the coast of Sweden. What? Yeah, it was even for. That was for Pock, so there wasn't any riding involved. But we went to we went to Stockholm, and then we hopped on a rib boat, which is like one of those rigid inflatable bow boats, kind of like what the like what a Navy SEALs would fly around, like scoot around into the water. They go like sixty knots. They go super fast. So we were in Stockholm, and we got on this crazy boat, and then it took us out to this little island uh, off the coast of Sweden, and then we hung out there, and I think we like slept in a lighthouse or something, and then we spent the night, and then went back and went and visited the Pock factory, and then I flew home. It was like a seventy-two hour turnaround. I went to Europe for two days, basically. Did you do any riding while you were there? No, that was just a visit Pox facility. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm just but imagining you wearing a helmet the whole time you were there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just sightseeing. Yeah. It was like, it was such a whirlwind thing. I, I, don't, I didn't nearly have jet lag until I got back home and then I was destroyed for like a week, but yeah. Yeah. Didn't you also go to New York for a helmet one time? I did. That was a funny one too. That was, I went to New York City for a helmet launch, so I hadn't been to New York in a while. I got some buddies there. I was like, yeah, I'll go to this. So I flew us out to New York City. We checked out the helmet spiel for like, I don't even know, maybe an hour, two hours, let's say at the most. And then they took us to a Rangers game. I went and visited my buddy, ate some pizza, and then flew home the next day. And I was like, hmm, probably could have sent me the helmet, but I got some good New York pizza. And I went to Katz's <laughs> Deli too. So I had, a good, I had a good deli sandwich too and a pickle. So I was like, ah, I'm all right. <laughs> yeah. 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 No riding. <laughs> Sarah Moore, you've been to some press camps too over the years. Where's... Where's the most interesting place you've been? Well, I've been to, I went to Buena Vista with Juliana. That was pretty fun. I'd never been there before. Yeah, really you should, different. You should mention riding. that's in Colorado because uh, it, it sounds fancy the way you said it. Oh, it's in Colorado. <laughs> was, yeah, it sounds really fancy. I was like, where, where in Spain Somewhere is in, that? <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean. Yeah, no, it's not actually that exotic. I've only been to the US actually for the bike launches that I've been to. So I went to Vermont, which was really great for a live launch. And then Squamish for another live launch. That oh, was really exotic. <laughs> and then, yeah, Buena Vista in Colorado was pretty cool. To be fair, we like it when people launch bikes in Squamish. Yes. Oh, it's so yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into that, but it is so nice when the bikes come to us, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. my preferred yeah. method. Yeah. I think no jet lag. Yeah, 100%. 
One of the most interesting places that I've been to, I went to San Remo, Italy for a shock, a rear shock. It turned out to actually be the same rear shock that was already out there, but it had a new top out spring in it. So we flew to Italy for this top out spring. But anyways, for those that like rally car racing, San Remo is a quite a historic place. It's uh, amazing roads and all that stuff. And we ended up in this restaurant for lunch one day in the middle of nowhere that just like covering the walls of this old rock building were old signed photos of legendary rally car racers and steering wheels and driving suits and gloves. Yeah, it was it was absolutely amazing. Brian, you used to organize press camps, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Where's the where's the most interesting place that you've sent people to ride a bicycle? When I worked for Rocky Mountain, we did a launch in Valberg and that was nice. That was a nice spot. Had good trails. Where the hell is that? It's in France. Oh, okay. It's in, in the Alps. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. It was nice. Um, a bunch of media complained that the trails were too hard. Ooh. So that was good. Perfect. Yeah. That's the opposite of what usually happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was, uh, so that was like my last thing at Rocky before I left. And so I was already leaving. So it was one of those like, trying to make it as good as possible and end on a good note and do the thing. So no, it was a good time. All right. Nice to see everybody. All right. So we've got some big news this week. Sarah, you're going to tell us about Specialized. Yeah. Uh, Specialized has added a consumer direct option for online bike sales. So Specialized has been offering online sales for a couple of years, but not for bikes. So until this month, customers who purchased the bike online had to go and collect it at their local dealer. But now, Specialized customers have the option to have their bikes shipped directly from Specialized to their doorsteps. So this actually makes them the first major traditional sales brand to also offer a consumer direct option. The bikes ordered online will be shipped mostly assembled, similar to what consumer direct brands currently do. But if you'd rather, you can also buy your bike at a dealer or have the bike delivered to your door fully assembled. So this all sounds great from a consumer standpoint. There are options for everyone, and the bike will cost the same regardless of how you buy it. Retailers, however, might be a little less excited about this change. If they assemble bikes purchased online for pickup, they'll earn 50% of their standard sales margin compared with 75% currently, and retailers that assemble and deliver bikes purchased online will earn 75% of the standard margin. So just just to break that down, so if a if a bike brand or if a bike shop currently sells you a bike they have to assume a lot of the risk they they booked the bike a long time ago and then they have that bike in stock so they're the ones that are that are assuming the risk if that bike doesn't sell with this sort of earning 50 percent of their standard margin it's specialized that's assuming the risk specialized is holding that inventory so the bike shop doesn't have to stock it they don't have to pay rent on a warehouse it just the person presses click and for the privilege of building the bike, they get to earn half their standard sales margin. I'm saying this as someone who spent a decade working in a small shop. Like, mm-hmm. I get it. I love small shops. But as a consumer, I'd rather the bike be cheaper and it just ships directly from Specialized. Well, it that, comes directly well, to me. Well, there's one <laughs> fatal flaw in what you just said. It isn't going to be cheaper. Yeah. Well, there's, but no, there's no person in the middle there taking another cut. Right, but Specialized is going to keep that extra margin in exchange for assuming more risk. Mm. Right, because they still have a, a dealer wholesale model, so their prices aren't going to change there, right? Like if you still have MSRP 
through the shop you're not gonna so you still have to have that model that that's one of the things i'm a little bit interested in how this whole thing goes i'm really curious to see whether people choose to buy like direct to their doorstep versus to the shop versus whatever i'd I'd love i'm sure it'll take some digging but at some point i'd like to get some data to see what people are choosing but it's not the same as a direct business model because you still have that middleman of the shop in the equation whether or not you use it as a consumer i don't i don't know but it's not like they can really lower the prices yeah so it sounds like you think yeah it's fair that retailers would receive less margin because they're the ones that are taking on all the risk well i think that's a discussion for another pod and we we've i've reached out to some people industry people that i think would be cool to talk about this with because it's a huge question to see what where retail's going i personally yeah i think it's i don't know i think we've talked about bike shops in the past on the on the podcast and i'm maybe less sympathetic to the plight of some bike shops i don't think our default should be support your local bike shop it should be support great bike shops and i don't think this is going to hurt great bike shops at all yeah i would i would agree i I think the good shops or the smart shops will adapt and, you know, maybe people order their bikes online and they go to their shop for help with other things. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Things are changing, right? I'm surprised it took this long, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. yeah. How, how is it, how has this news been received? Have the, have the comments been positive or negative? There's definitely a lot of comments in there, in the, that article that say, you know, Specialized is cutting out. The local dealer and not supporting their local dealers is it the same people who complain about prices being high and no availability and, <laughs> yeah probably and shop doesn't have stuff in stock? I, that was yeah. the other comment actually there's a lot of people who are like well we want the cost savings to to come to the customer at the end of the line so yeah nobody's happy of course <laughs> whoa brian you mentioned surprise, surprise. you mentioned availability there which i think could be another big factor with this if the shops don't have to take the risk with bikes on hand and shipping is relatively quick, it means that people could actually get the bikes they want sooner. Oh, I think it probably means, I'm making a, some, a lot of assumptions here, but I think it'll probably mean that a brand like Specialized can control their inventory a bit better. So one of the bikes that Specialized customers will now be able to purchase online is a Specialized Status, a bike that Matt Beer actually just wrote a review on. So it has a 29-inch front wheel, a 27.5 rear wheel, 140 millimeters of rear travel paired with a 150-millimeter fork, and either 64.2 or a 63.7-degree hedgy bangle. While that 140 millimeters of travel would typically put it squarely into the trail bike segment, that slack hedgy bangle, mega short chainstays, and a mullet wheel combo across all frame sizes set it free from any classification. Are those their words or ours? I hope it's theirs. That's a bad beer. I can classify this one. Yeah. What would you classify? That's gonna be my question here. Yeah, it's just like a jibby trail bike. I like the the title. Was it slope Juro? A little bit of everything here. It's not aggressive trail, Kaz. It's jib trail. It's slope Duro cross. Oh shit. Yeah, okay. yeah, see, I think that he's right. It sets it free from any classification because that's not a real classification, guys. Trail bikes <laughs> is a real classification. <laughs> Unless, you know, we're going to start, you know, having a field test with the slope duro cross uh, category uh, here. Don't give people I ideas. Right, don't mention it. We'll need some new staff members if we do a slope <laughs> yeah. bike field test. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I can't do that. My one-handers are dialed. Yeah, yeah. It's also available in a 160 millimeter rear travel option. 
and a frame kit. Both the 140 and the 160 are spec'd with the same components and cost just $2,999 US dollars. The frame kit is only $1,399 US dollars. It sounds like Matt enjoyed riding the bike, saying that it is an affordable package with a ton of character. What do you guys think of this one? Well, I happen to know a guy who rode one of those a while back. (laughs) (laughs) There's no conspiracy. There's no weird thing. I literally wrote the travel wrong. I had the travel wrong. So we pulled the review. Um, But I rode the 140. I really liked it. I mean, it it felt capable and did all the things and felt solid. And it's a good deal. I know. What else do you want? You know? Yeah. I like it that for me that... On the S4, the chainstays are just a little too short. It feels a little weird when you get in like super steep trails. It just kind of, you definitely, there's not as much balance with those longer sizes, I would say. Yeah, I think that's cool because there are lots of, you know, Specialized has a bike in that travel range and geometry range that is much longer and racier. Like, I think it's cool to have something a little different, something for slashing weird shit and playing around in the woods a little more okay let's move on to a pricier new bike santa cruz has released an updated heckler emtv this is the motorized equivalent of the bronson with 150 millimeters of rear travel 160 millimeter fork and a 64 and a half degree head tube angle along with the new angles the 2022 heckler now has more battery capacity thanks to a 720 watt hour battery manufactured by darfin one of shimano's approved partners that's a significant step up from the 504 watt hour battery that was used before, which should allow for much longer rides. Kaz, you spent some time on this one. Did you do some really long rides on it? I did. Yeah. I'm a fan of the big battery. I think that 720 watt hour battery, it makes it. So it's, I'd say it's like the right amount almost for a bike that you just don't have to worry about battery unless you're going to go for some crazy, crazy long ride. But with that much uh, juice in the tank, it's you can kind of just go and not need to think about it. You don't get range anxiety. Kaz, most of the time when we see a brand launch a bike and then replace it within, you know, 18 months or something, it's because they mess something up. Correct me. I think the Heckler actually launched with the first Shimano e-bike motor, and then they immediately replaced it with the new Shimano e-bike motor, mm-hmm. which was just a swap. It wasn't like a, they didn't have to change the frame for that, but now they've changed the frame. Was it largely to put a bigger battery in or was it do you think that they were fixing another issue well i mean i don't know if you call it issues but the geometry of that first one was pretty conservative and now it's basically okay. mi- mirrors the heckler mirrors the bronson's geometry so the bronson got an update okay. so now the heckler got an update so now they have the exact same geometry other than chainstay length because you need to they need a little more room for the the motor in there but like head angle and all that stuff is the same as the bronson just to be clear can you run the smaller battery if you still wanted to or a bigger battery like is it like the norco thing or is it just one 720 watt hour it's one battery and then the fun thing is if you somehow had the previous generation heckler and then you bought this new one wanted to have two bikes they both use different chargers oh because you have the batteries from darfon (laughs) and one and one has a shimano battery so then you get to use two different chargers what the heck is a Darfon? Are they making batteries for everybody? I don't know anything about you. Not for everybody. There's different. It's like a Shimano approved vendor. So like Shimano makes it certain they make their own batteries. And then there's a handful of other companies that make batteries that are approved to use. Yeah. Which is different from say the Bosch system where only you can only run the Bosch system. Shimano seems to be a little bit more open. Okay. So can people like buy a Darfon battery for their bike cast separately if they wanted? It would have to be the same one that's in there. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. can't put a bigger or smaller, but you could okay. probably find one somewhere. But it's uh, it's going to be probably easier just to go to your dealer and get one. Like, I think that's I think it's a, still a go through go through your Santa Cruz dealer type. Of thing. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, so February 1st was a big day to launch things. We had the status, we had the heckler, and 1UP also joined in on the fun, launching some new dropper posts. They've added a 240mm post and a 90mm post to their line, meaning that when combined with the 20mm of travel reduction that's possible via shims, there's now a 1UP dropper option available in 10mm increments all the way from 70mm all the way up to 240mm of drop. The 90mm post is there to cater to those extra small bikes, kids' bikes, gravel bikes, as well as bikes that have interrupted seat tubes that inhibit more traditional longer posts. And as you may have guessed it, the 240mm caters to tall people. The interesting thing about the longer post is that it comes with slightly different bushings, which ensure more overlap and a stiffer post. This is needed due to the larger extension and subsequent increase in leverage. I was wondering what length dropper post you guys run do you think you need a 240 millimeter dropper or levy have you put a 90 millimeter dropper on your gravel bike yet here <laughs> people are crazy <laughs> i get by just fine with a 175 sometimes i i ride a bike still that has a an older bike that has a 150 on it but man 175 is great so i mean the more the better i guess yeah i run a 210 usually if i can get away with 200 especially with steeper c2 bangles that you need to run that longer post. Otherwise it's in the way just the same amount as it would have been. Like in the older days, we had a slacker seat angles. 150 was fine. Cause it got more out of the way, but with the steeper ones, yeah, the 200, 210 works really well for me. I don't know if I could run a 240. I don't think I'm quite tall enough, but I think people over like six foot, six one should be able to run it. Well, also we'll probably see some, um, C tube lengths get a little shorter to stuff those in there. I, uh, you know, I run, I run a 210 and I'm five, seven. So, if I'm running a two, if I'm running a two ten, then a tall, an actual tall person running a two forty wouldn't be different. And I like it. I didn't think I would, I didn't think there'd be a real difference to me going from one seventy or one eighty to two ten. But I use it. You know, I have it now and I use it. So and it it does kind of depend on the bike. Like on my spur, I had a, I tried it with a two hundred, and then I didn't like it. It was too much, and I switched to one seventy five just because that bike is more riding on, you know, mellower trails and like rolling terrain. It felt like I was just going up and down on the post too much. So yeah, there's, you know, it's just nice to have all these options. It's not like every bike all of a sudden is going to have a 240 post on it. More bikes should have 200s though, at least. Yeah. I'm also really impressed that they were able to keep the stack height fairly low on that 240. I feel like in an ideal world, all these bikes would have crazy short seat tubes. The dropper posts would all have too much travel and somehow still be reliable. And then the bike shop or you would shim your post. So you would have the most amount of drop possible mm-hmm. in an ideal world. Well, totally. And like, I have one bike that has, is I was able to shim down to like exactly flush with the seat tube yeah, uh, or with the seat collar. And it looks so good. And it feels, it's like really nice to have that. I will also say that like, there's never been a time where I've rolled up to something and been on like a 150 <laughs> mil dropper post and been like, Oh, I can't ride this because my seat doesn't get out of the way. But when you're riding in, you, you come up on something on the trail. I mean, it sure is nice to have 175 or even 200 a lot of times. Oh, my God. So I rode Dan Roberts, um, some older Scott he had with a with a fixed post that didn't get out of the way enough in Champery. And it was scary. Like, not having a post that gets out of the way. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I could do it. Ugh. It was yeah, not nice. I don't think I could do it. It was so fun at the cross-country field test, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got some value bucks in the way without dropper posts, so you just everybody get ready. Oh, yeah, we had to do some of those. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit, for Tucson? We have yeah. some without droppers in Tucson? Mm. There's a couple, yeah. It's good. You get used to it. It's just, It'll you know, it takes, like... <laughs> You may, might not ride exactly how you usually ride. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It, I'm totally changing the subject, but 
has anything really happened with the those eight pin style people or people trying to make one of one of the tubes redundant because it seems like there's a tube in a tube and then a slidey tube in that it seems like there's one too many tubes the ghost had one of them was it how was it was it bad well they, the works. thing is i know you, they're not you can spec them there's different travel options so they spec the 160 version so it didn't really uh, work with the bike <laughs> i mean it worked but it wasn't like and the, yeah the idea with those eight pins is that you could have tons of travel slamming all the way down but um there's that's not on. eight pins fault ghost made like 18 wrong decisions specking that bike <laughs> yeah well eight pin the eight pins one is still disappointing because it's not any lighter than a traditional dropper post and I think it should be. Like, if you're getting rid of one of the tubes, it should be lighter. But Let's wrap this up with the news that the UCI has released the teams list, finally, end of racing rumor season. A couple of things we noticed that had flown under the radar during rumor season are that Jacob Dixon has moved to MS Mondraker. Specialized has a collection of up-and-coming gravity riders who will be racing on a Gen S team this year. And young BC ripper Gracie Hemstreet has joined the Norco Factory downhill crew. We also saw that there's a 555 Raw Gravity racing team with the makers of the Madonna and the Jib backing a World Cup Gravity team. This, of course, suggests that there may be a Raw downhill bike in the works. Have you guys heard anything about that? I know what I haven't heard, and that's I haven't haven't heard back from Dan Roberts in a little while. He's probably working away on that shit. <laughs> I feel like Raw would make a pretty sick downhill bike. Like, yeah. as a company... Like, they suit downhill bikes. Downhill bikes suit them. I mean, the tube set is like 10,000 pounds, so they don't even need <laughs> right? to change the tube shapes from the Madonna. They just change the angles a little yeah. bit, and they're good to go. They can use the tubes from the jib, probably. It's fine. It, they're, they're the same tubes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on to questions next. Kaz, I've got two geometry questions for you. The first one is about seat tube angles. It's from Pink Bike user T. Grumman. He says on the MTB Geo episode, you guys were talking about seat tube angles. Why is a steeper angle better? And why are we still trying to decide what the right seat tube angle is when road bikes have settled on oh, 73 degrees for a long time? Well, that's not the number we want. But so Kaz, why is steeper better these days? And why is there no right number? Yeah, we've seen an increase in steeper seat tube angles due to the increase in reach in bikes. So basically, as you make the front of the bike longer, if you still want to reach those handlebars, you kind of need to move the seat forward to accommodate. So you do that with a steeper seat tube angle. So if you look at a road bike, those reach numbers are way smaller than what you're riding on a, a mountain bike. Um, that's why you see longer stems and it's a whole just obviously a different sport. But yeah, so mountain bikes have gotten longer due to longer reach numbers, longer front and center. So they steepen the seat tube angle, keeps you in that. It basically, it makes your cockpit feel the same. Like I was looking at some geometry numbers the other day just to look at the, uh, like basically looking at top tube lengths of bikes. And so right now, a lot of the bikes coming in have maybe a 620 millimeter top tube for a size large. And I looked at some reviews that I wrote back in, I don't even know, like 2012, 2013. And those bikes have the same top tube number, top tube length number. So basically when I'm sitting, sitting and riding those bikes, they feel the same. But then when you stand up, you have a lot more bike in front of you. Um, the wheelbase is longer. So everything's grown, but you can make the pedaling position feel pretty similar to what you've always ridden on. So just to simplify, it's you sort you decide on your reach first to nail your descending characteristics or your your sort of stability characteristics and then you try and find a bike that gets the seat tube angle in into the range where you can be comfortable for seated pedaling mm -hmm. yeah that's a good tactic yeah because yeah. some bikes if you want with a super long reach but then if you can't reach the, the bars while you're sitting down it's kind of feel weird <laughs> and if you're somebody who likes shorter jibby type bikes you might you may not want 
assume you know you may not want an 80 degree c2 angle mm-hmm. right yeah it might make it feel too cramped yeah there's one of the things some of these bikes like you can get up get a lot of companies say oh you can pick any size just choose the reach but that's not always the case because some of them you might feel like your knees are going to hit your ears when you're pedaling or vice versa so it's you got to kind of look at all the numbers and also on really flat terrain uh, a super steep seat angle can feel a little strange kind of depends i think some people make a bigger deal out of it than it than it is because i've ridden some really steep bikes and i have a i have a dead flat approach basically to the trails and i haven't ever felt like oh this is horrible but i will say as you approach that maybe 80 degree c tube angle it can put more pressure on your hands especially if you're running a lower front end so um, it takes a little bit of tinkering sometimes all right kaz let's keep it on the geo for a few extra minutes this one is from pink bike user mjb uh, he wants to know about manufacturers providing geo numbers in the sag position rather than fully extended. Uh, he says, it seems like we compare all kinds of geometry values and then sit on the bike, which immediately throws them off. Plus, each bike would sag into these numbers differently. So comparing the usual non-sag values isn't exactly apples to apples. So I think what he wants to know is, Kaz, how come we have static numbers sometimes and how come we don't use sag numbers <laughs> he just wants to see if we can make it more complicated i mean the the, the easy yeah. answer is that like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah 30 percent sag is 30 percent sag no matter the bike so it, it the, you just need a baseline so this gives you a baseline if you just have all the numbers non-sagged and then you go from there otherwise it's just going to be so confusing obviously when you sit on a bike those numbers change but it's it's a kind of the same thing if you gave all the numbers at sag you would still have the same you'd be back where you started but just in a more confusing way. We already have real struggles with manufacturers talking past each other and comparing apples to oranges in their different in their different, you know, whether it's weights and like, oh, this is without the hardware for this frame weight, or or hey, we're doing seat tube angle at only at the stack height versus at top of seat to seat post length versus, you know, actual actual seat tube numbers versus theoretical Blah blah blah. There's so many variables. Uh, I see, I like I like the idea of of having more real world numbers, but it hurts it hurts my brain to think about how bad everybody would fuck this up. I feel like I need a ten minute break after reading that question. <laughs> yeah. I get, I get what he's the doing, pink but bike just reviews now have two geo charts. Yeah. One that, yeah. it's just yeah. all yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, don't worry, guys. It's nothing like working for a bike brand that decided to have nine different geometry and <laughs> kinematic positions. Don't even like, get me hey, started. I pay, got it too much. How already. are you gonna? How are you gonna fit this into the catalog <laughs> and on the website? That's a great point. <laughs> All right, we're gonna go on to a question about e-bikes from Crack City Jones. Now, um, he says he's been seeing way more e-bikes on the trails, and he has a question about etiquette. Yesterday, he was on a single track climb and a pair of e-bikes came flying up behind him, he says, and they hovered behind him, but a bike length behind him for a little while. If a super fit rider came up behind him, he says, he'd pull over out of respect. But since this was a steep trail and he says they these e-bike riders haven't earned his respect by actually having climbing chops, he let them just sit there behind him. So he blocked them, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Um, he wants to know what is the etiquette for passing and yielding when climbing, both for human-powered bikes and electric bikes. I mean, I think the, there's one rule, and is don't be an asshole usually. But yeah. what do you guys think? That's the same. Yeah, and you just be polite. Like if you're on the e-bike, you come up behind someone, 
just say, Hey, I'll pass you when I get, you know, when you have a chance, it's not like, don't ride the rear wheel. Don't be a jerk. Like the whole thing just comes down to don't be a jerk. But also if you're on a regular bike and you can move over, don't be like holier than thou. Like you didn't earn it and just block them because that's going to cause conflicts. Like you don't want to just don't cause problems. Just ride your bike. That's it. Yeah. Be nice. I, yeah. I, I caused a conflict one time. I'm sure you did. Just once. <laughs> yeah, just once. <laughs> um, with an e-biker, I was climbing up this fire road and he was hauling ass coming up behind me, of course. And this was like a 30 foot wide gravel road. So I just like moved on over and got right in front of him and I blocked him. And then he like went to pass me and I just like kept like blocking this guy. <laughs> like, so is, I was... is this you asking this question? <laughs> yeah, this <is> you. <laughs> so, Should I be blocking e bike riders? <laughs> yes, your etiquette was poor, lady. You did the wrong thing. <laughs> really I no, I paid the price. Like I was sitting at 500 watts for about a minute to keep this e bike rider behind me, and then I I think I actually I couldn't even unclip. I think I literally just fell over in front of this e bike rider. So and he thought you it was did. funny. Yeah, you deserve it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I definitely over. had it yeah. where one rider on the left on their e-bike and one rider on the right on an e-bike passed me and like just like either side of you you're like okay just gonna be really narrow and hope that they don't hit me because they go really fast it was kind of scary i was like well that's bad etiquette i don't like e-bike riders <laughs> so don't do that if you're on an e-bike rider <laughs> i was a while ago i was actually hit by an e-biker and we both crashed she flipped over the handlebars How, were you what were you doing yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, I was riding. I was riding down the road, and she was behind a car, and she was stopped, sitting behind a parked car that was like perpendicular to the road, and she like half cranked on the cranks, I guess, like but just enough for the motor to go, and it pushed her right out in front of me, and I t-boned her, and it like turned her handlebars. She literally flipped over the handlebars, <laughs> like went right over my bike, and yeah, I flipped over on my stupid gravel bike. And hey, be careful on e-bikes. So just to just to reiterate, Levy dick move, Crack City Jones dick move, <laughs> but also e-bikers passing aggressively dick move. Yeah, yeah. It's just everybody chill out and be nice and just ride where there aren't as many people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And also, like when you catch up to somebody on a climb, that you don't need to expect them to move out of the way right right away. You know, it's like yeah. everybody's so stressed out when like somebody on a downhill or a climb. It's like just move over when there's like a passing lane. It's fine. Yeah, Lots let them know trails. you're there. And you know, there's like, more so... obvious places to pass. Just go to a more obvious place. Let somebody pass. What if they're straving though? They might be going for a calm. Get out of the way. Well, e-bikes, then you can there's tell no comms on e-bikes. Then... Strava doesn't oh. have e-bike comms, so that's. We're, we're 30 minutes deep. I've got one more question here. Lots of questions today, but I did want to get to this one. This guy's username checks out. Pink bike user Bitter Biker has a question for Brian. He says, biased look with the Norco range for bike of the year. It was chosen, followed quickly by front page advertisements for the Norco range, he says. Uh, he goes on to say best experimental bike of the year, but probably not the best overall bike. I mean, yeah, I would, I would agree. It's not the best overall bike, but that's not what bike of the year is. Brian, tell Bitter Biker what's up. Oh, I don't think there was a question there. I think he just wanted to, to talk some smack. Yeah. Two things. So bike of the year isn't the single best bike for all people. It's a bike that we loved in the, in the year that came out in the year that also kind of like captured the zeitgeist of mountain bike development for that year so that's sort of how those things happen our wards a hundred percent are not influenced by anybody's ad spends and the tech team doesn't know who spends what uh, like i don't i'm not gonna 
like it's obvious obviously a subjective take it's our bike of the year so i'm not going to say it's not biased but it's not biased by money if that's what the implication and then talking from a marketing standpoint i i i'm i don't know i don't understand why he's surprised that when a brand won an award they wouldn't communicate on it yeah they yeah, want to like, tell like, the customers I, right right yeah when i when i worked when when i was a marketing guy and we won an award we took out ads to tell people about that too like that's i don't know yeah think about like ford trucks where we like motor trend truck of the year or whatever whenever you get the award you want to broadcast it to the world and that's what happened here it'd be weirder if they had their ad before the award saying they were going to win like watch this we're going to win the award <laughs> well, well, also i just want to point out like it's it's not like our awards have a ton of big players all the time right like lol bikes won for innovation over over sram and like if if the awards were a way for us to generate money and we were just extorting all these brands for whatever you know it would be we wouldn't choose lol bikes you know or you know what mrps won awards like lots of smaller brands win awards all the time so that's not it and I'm, I'm i'm trying not to be super bitter about <laughs> that type of implication yeah. but now that we've whatever. answered his I'm, question is... i want to go in and change his name to unbitter biker <laughs> yeah yeah happy biker, yeah, biker. Happy biker. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know no it is good to be it's good to be skeptical it is but this one just no sorry dude you're wrong i can also understand though why he would ask that question i mean yep. for sure and for the record like yeah and also but for the record kaz like the editorial team when we review a bike and the review is on the homepage. Man, we do not like seeing ads up there for this very reason, you know? I'd rather not see the ad. <laughs> for yeah. Sure. Well, well, we try to not have ad, like big takeovers around um around reviews with the exception being when a bike's when we have a review at launch, like you kind of can't stop a brand from taking out ads on their launch day. Yeah. So, speaking of brands, and press camps and launches. Yeah. Let's get into it. Let's move on. Talk about press camps. Uh, and while it might kind of be obvious to some what they are, we should probably start off by explaining what the heck a press camp is and why they happen. The name pretty much explains it, but the idea is for a bike brand to get some media people together in the same place so that brand could tell those media types all about the product, why it's the best product in the world, in the history of products. And I'm Kind of only half joking about that, Kaz, to be honest. So when a company has a new thing, be it a bike or piece of gear or even a new piece of clothing, they have a few different ways of letting the public know about the new thing. They could put the new thing out there themselves via ads and social media, which is basically the same thing. Or they could send that product out to media people early so that when the embargo lifts... The media has all the information and maybe even some riding impressions on it. And we do this all the time. And that's when you see things like first ride titles on new bikes and stuff like that. Lastly, they can ask the media to come to a press camp for a few days where the media rides the new products before it's officially released. So when that does happen, the media has all the information and, and hopefully some, some good riding impressions. So Brian, first question for you is, why do brands want media to come to a camp? What is, what is in it for them? Why does it make sense from a brand perspective? A lot of these decisions are driven by concern over the lack of control if you just send your bike out into the wild. And having been on that side, I understand it. I understand sending a bike out for review and then watching as somebody comes back with a, you know, a fairly nonplussed review 
and it's very clear that they didn't ride the bike on terrain that made sense. Or they had a really simple thing that could have been fixed if they'd just been in a controlled environment where you, you know, it's like, oh, hey, like your sag is all messed up, dude. Like we gotta, we gotta fix this, you know? You've seen that from like when you were working at Rocky, you (laughs) saw that fairly often or? Yeah, I mean... I think it's on, like, I, I should be clear, like, my bias is to have less media camps. I don't think that they're necessarily, they cost, you know, anywhere between 200 and 500 grand. Like, what? they're expensive. Oh, yeah. Media camps are expensive. Holy shit. Yeah. What are you paying for? It's, Why do they cost that much? Oh, uh, well, you're paying for the a lot of the bikes. You're paying for a ton of air freight because normally the way you do a media camp is you, you get the bikes, they're done in Taiwan, and you, you know, you're sort of pilot run your first production run and you put them on a the bulk of them on a boat to dealers or and distributors um and then you air freight the the a certain amount of them to hq or wherever you're going to do a launch and then those bikes end up becoming demo bikes and that kind of thing uh after the launch so you're you're going to pay a little bit for the bikes but you're going to share that with the demo program and whatever else you it's kind of a cost of doing business that's fine but it's just the air freighting them is really expensive because it costs a lot more than putting them on a boat and 30 bikes to air freight is, is a lot of money. And then flying a bunch of, you know, 30 journalists or 20 journalists around the world is a lot of money. And then inevitably there's pressure to do it in a, in a fancy location. Um, sometimes for good reason, sometimes not. Yeah. It, it adds up. And then even if you're, you know, even if you're not whining and dining people, it's, um, it adds up really, really fast. What are some of the other expenses for a brand at a press camp? I imagine photography and video would be one as well. Well, all the payoffs, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brian. Um, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> say you're joking. Say you're joking. <laughs> this isn't helping our cause. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, uh, there is absolutely an aspect of brands thinking that they are buying people's friendship or stoke or you know having them on side by giving them a cool experience that's for sure something brands think that they're paying for whether that's true or worth it or you know i would say by and large the large majority of mountain bike journalists or test people don't let that get to their heads i hope for the most part what is the most expensive thing that you guys would have spent money on at a press camp. I will say I was occasionally disappointed at the, you know, sometimes we launch things at a place where SRAM had launched things two weeks before, and I was disappointed that we didn't match their bar tab. (laughs) (laughs) What about unnecessary helicopter shuttles? Uh, I think helicopter shuttles are always necessary. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I mean, those, all those things seem like a good, spend after you've spent all the stupid money on getting the people places and bikes places that's just the real real expense and how important is it for you guys to have one of your athletes at one of these things too what are they doing there you guys you guys (laughs) sorry (laughs) um well it's trying to trying to get people all starstruck right Um, you know it's it's you want control of your message you want to give them the kool-aid in the right setting you know for sure there's some good reasons of having engineers there and having the product you know getting answers directly from the product manager who designed the bike that has value and it's worth doing it all at once rather than having the product manager answer 40 different media people's questions constantly over email or zoom or whatever i think that it really isn't shouldn't be 
understated about the like intended use of a bike letting you dictate the trails that it's for is important Mm -hmm. yeah i guess you're kind of giving the bike the best shot by giving it this launch Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you can send the bike off to somebody at at their house but if they send you to this camp it's kind of they've got all the cards on their side and hopefully that'll be enough to wow you but it is more likely than if they send it to your house potentially i will say that i've been in lots of meetings where people were really hyper focused on like surprising and delighting the media kind of thing (laughs) surprising good luck (laughs) well it's just i'm it's a it comes from out of bike industry it comes from car journalists to be honest who i've heard the craziest stories about car journalists where it's like you know they arrive at a thing and then they demand to go mountain biking and somebody has to like from the car company has to like scramble to rent mountain bikes and then yeah i mean it's that's a weird crazy industry i think and i think sometimes that bleeds over or you know you read the same marketing books and then all of a sudden you think you have to do it and it becomes a bit of an arms race there's one other side to press launches that i think is worth remembering and that's that they often act or double as dealer or distributor launches and a ton of what people think marketing is never actually makes it to the consumer because they're not necessarily the ones buying the bikes first it's dealers and distributors and so you may have like a dealer event at that thing before you have the media. And in those instances, maybe it's like you're already spending the money on the bikes and the travel and the hotels and the everything, the, you know, having the athlete there, etc. You may as well do two days with media afterward, after your dealer thing where you've been getting, you know, stoking them out, getting them on things and then, and then taking orders for bookings mm-hmm. like in the old world before so much stuff went direct and didn't have COVID, etc. But yeah, it's worth keeping that in mind. Yeah. When you were running these press camps, Brian, did you ever have one of your bikes break, one of your media bikes break at a press camp or any issues like that? Absolutely no comment. <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> yes, everybody. <laughs> uh, you know what? Every bike brand has had issues with product at launch because they are often too early. Yeah. Because, yeah, like the the gross part about the dealer wholesale model that I always complain about isn't that I hate bike shops and stuff. It's how much it pressure it puts on timelines that just get horrendously compressed and you have to be launching a bike six months before they're available to the consumer Mm -hmm. and all kinds of terrible shit. And that is when bikes and products in general get launched before they're ready. That's when the frames show up, not heat treated, (laughs) but they're on time. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I was I was at a trek camp in Copper Canyon in Mexico. It was one of my earliest press camps a long time ago. It was the first trek remedy camp, so very first remedy that that far ago. And on our first ride, we were maybe half an hour in and it wasn't me, it was another media guy. He broke the chain stay on the remedy. We we hadn't even got to the mountain yet. Oh. They were on him though. Like they, they, you know, switched the bike and that broken bike disappeared and yeah. Kaz, have you ever had anything broken at a press camp? Uh, sometimes myself, but yeah, no, I, don't, <laughs> I mean, I've seen nothing like crazy catastrophic. I don't think, I never have been at one where the, let me try to think. I don't think I've seen one where like the actual like flagship product has failed. I think it's often more like the, the wrong backend uh, or the backends weren't the most up-to-date version. So 
they're a little bit more flexible than they should be, but they're not going to break. Or, oh, you know, the shock tunes, uh, the, the wrong shock tunes happened. We haven't had time to nail the shock tune yet. So that type of thing often happens. Speaking about when things go wrong, Sarah, what happens when you don't have any bikes? You used to work at Norco, and there's a story about you not having any bikes for a press camp. Can you share it with us? Yeah, great story. It was the second press camp that I'd organized for Norco. So we did one for the Optic. It was like Norco's first press camp. Went over pretty what well. What year uh, So the last Optic. So it would have been, I want to say like 2016, maybe? 2016, 17. So that one went off pretty well. And then the next press camp, we didn't get RC to come to the optic press camp. So we were like, okay, we got to get somebody from Pink Bike. Mike Kazmer agreed to come to this press camp. It was like 10 media. We were all going to go to Mallorca in Spain in December. It was going to be great. And I think it was two days before the, like we were supposed to leave, you know, we'd booked hotels, we'd booked all the food, we'd figured out like all the shuttle logistics, we'd, you know, booked air travel from like all sorts of crazy places that media tend to live. And uh, two days before everybody was supposed to leave. And I think I was supposed to leave like the next day or something. We got a call from the factory and they're like, we can't have the press launch. I think the bikes didn't get to the right place at the right time or they opened the box and it wasn't the right bike there yeah <laughs> i don't know the exact details but they were basically like we can't do the press release so i had to tell everybody that we had to cancel the event and not go to spain in december which would have been great and i basically at that point you've organized the entire event like the hard part is over now you just get to like do the fun part and go ride bikes with a bunch of people in a really nice part of the world. And so, yeah, the hard part was over, but it was just the beginning. So we sent those bikes out later to people on their own time, got to ride them. Mallorca in December is like one of the few times Pacific Northwest mountain bike journalists actually want are stoked to go somewhere. Yeah, like, I'll <laughs> go there. That sounds nice. <laughs> I feel like I still yeah, have to work too right. hard in Canada. I was like, <laughs> let's, Brian, you're only you're only kind of half joking there. Let's talk about that for a minute. Like, so Kaz, you and I, and a bunch of other people that work for Pink Bike and other journalists, we all live in the Pacific Northwest. Where, I mean, I don't think I need to tell anybody the trails definitely do not suck. A lot of times, we're traveling around the world to ride a bike somewhere where the trails aren't nearly as good as home are we yeah i had one ride like one of my earlier press camps i went to spain for it's for bh oh, yeah. bikes and then so i get there and i was there a day earlier so uh myself and dave weagle was there it was a dave weagle uh suspension design on the bike so he was there so we and i are going to go out just do a little pre-ride and like just shake off the jet lag and the guy who's going to be the guide comes with us and he starts taking us around and the trails were so bad like he we were going just through a field that it looked like one person had ridden across a field with almost like neck neck high enduro, meat baby. or something. Yeah, and that's what he said <laughs> in his Spanish accent. He's like, "No, this is enduro. It's enduro." I was like, "No, man, this isn't enduro. Like, we're not. I don't know what this is, but this is the worst." And like, at one point, we descended this ravine just down to a creek. Like, we rode down through scree and rubble and just nothing you would ever purposely ride on. And it just ended up in a creek. We had to cross this creek, and then soon we got to the edge of this the edges ridge with these jumps that it looked like a five-year-old had built. And he was like trying to get us to hit the jumps. But if you cased them, you'd fall off probably to your death. And I was like, this is not <laughs> the worst trails. It was so bad. We will definitely like a, we'll call it a small meltdown trying to get the guy to like, 
you know, because the next day was going when all the rest of the journalists are going to come <laughs> in and, you know, need to ride on some regular trails. And so you had to explain them like what single track was, what we're looking for. It was pretty entertaining, but it was like not the riding was so weird. It was, I mean, yeah, it was an adventure, <laughs> but not anything I would do on purpose. Yeah. So, some of these trips are definitely, we, we need to appreciate them more for the trip itself and where we're going than the actual trails. And Brian, you mentioned this earlier as well, too. Sometimes we're going somewhere and we get there and we're riding like a 150 or a 160 mil bike. And the place they've picked, the trails are like, they're fucking butter smooth butter smooth. Like I've been to press camps where I've literally spent like half an hour, 45 minutes piling rocks on the trail so we could get some photos <laughs> of me like smashing into rocks on this, on this bike and not a, yeah, not an acceptable place. And from my perspective, I wonder why they picked it to be honest, that location, but Hey, wow. There's so many, I mean, I feel like I'm painting a pretty cynical picture of why people do press camps. I think, you know, I think there are some good reasons like Sarah, was it similar at Norco? Like those pressures in terms of controlling the message and, and that kind of thing? I mean, I would say the reason that we chose a place like Mallorca was because it was going to be hot and sunny and hopefully then people would, you know, enjoy riding more than if we invited them to Squamish in December. Because it, it depends on when the timing of when the bike is coming out as well and what parts of the world are rideable. You can't really go and do a sweet launch in December in the Alps, no matter how much you would like to. So I'd say that was part of how we decided where to go. And then also having either a distributor or like some sort of partner on the ground is pretty important if you've never been there. So it depends how much you trust that person, I guess, if you can trust that they're going to, you know, know what kind of trails will highlight your bike the best way possible. I think the types of press camps that i like the best are the ones where where the brand happens to be in a or has chosen to be in a good place and it's their home it's their home launch and you can actually go and see their factory or their prototyping plan you can actually meet all the people and there's a reason to go and absorb who they are and the culture and whatever else and ride their trails and see where they're coming from that can be really good when they're in a good place or it can be really shit when they're in a shit place. I think another factor we're forgetting here is these brands have to pick a place where everybody can ride the bike. Like Kaz, we have gnarly trails five minutes away from our house that we ride all the time. And it's kind of what we're used to, but some media is coming from places in the world where they don't have as technical terrain. And like Brian and Sarah, you don't want to kill these people. Do you? <laughs> well, also, you want them to be relatively close to an international airport as well, ideally, uh, so yes. people don't have like four different flights to get to wherever you're sending them. So by the time they get there, they're just exhausted and don't even want to ride your bike. So there's, yeah, it's kind of a fine line between how these brands have to have somewhere that's cool, but not too inaccessible and then also has good trails. And yeah, you don't want to ideally kill them, but you want to have a little bit of like range of trails for everybody who attends. Cause yeah, there's definitely a wide variety of rider qual rider abilities at any event. I think, I think I'm going to tell the story of, of the, the press camp I pranked Alan Crisp with. Please do. So when we did the first donut, video we had to do a, a, a fake press release for the background of one of the videos and so i wrote i've done a few press releases so i did a fake one 
and for the it was called the Flexor 8.2 650C. <laughs> <laughs> and it said it had truly revolutionary performance thanks to really forward geometry and and it had divorced suspension design which kept pedaling forces, braking forces, gear ratios and your parents entirely separate from each other. <laughs> yeah, it had a whole bunch of really yeah, dumb shit and the press launch was going to be in in Pyongyang, North Korea nice. and it was going to be you had to yeah, you had to travel <laughs> you had to travel December 22nd or yeah, December 22nd and then yeah, anyway, the presentation was on on Christmas Eve <laughs> and then and then there was a half day of riding uh flowing single track with our professional athletes including the third most popular free rider in southern bavaria and then (laughs) december 26th to 28th was traveling home anyways it was like a big dumb joke and after i I did it i was like oh shit so i made a fake email and sent it as a pr to our head of sales alan crisp (laughs) and i'm sorry alan but (laughs) he 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 read it didn't clue in and immediately sent it over to me being like, hey, do you know anything about these guys? <laughs> yeah, they're idiots. <laughs> and I think I even said like, I'll pay to like win the, I'll pay to win a uh, a shootout and blah, blah, blah in the PR. Nice. Like, we can talk about an ad deal if you let us win. <laughs> Don't give and, Bitter um... Biker any ammo. Unbitter <laughs> <laughs> Biker. Uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry, Alan. He thought it was real. And then I sent it to him again like a year later, two years later, as a like, remember when, and it got him again. Nice. <laughs> he probably didn't read the whole email. <laughs> we'll, I'll put it, I'll put it in, we should put the, that in the podcast. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. I'll sure. put the file in there. Yeah. All right. So that's what press camps are like from a bike brand perspective. But Kaz, you and I have been to press camps for ages now we've been going to these things some of them have been great fun some of them have been gong shows let's talk about what they're like from a media perspective so generally speaking we get flown somewhere it might be somewhere close it might be all the way across an ocean in europe somebody picks us up on the other side of the airport in a shuttle bus take us to a hotel kaz can you tell us about the brainwashing i mean product presentation how are those <laughs> Uh, it depends on the company. Some companies are good about just being like, hey, we'll keep this short. Other ones have like just PowerPoints and every engineer that has ever touched the bike shows up and you're super jet lagged. So you're just trying to sit there and pretend you're paying attention, but you're not because you know they're just going to email you the PDF afterwards anyways. Right. So, <laughs> so there's that. But like, I mean, it depends. Yeah, some are like obnoxiously long, but other ones are pretty quick. Just like, hey, here's the bike. We want to get you guys rolling, but here's the details. And I do say it is nice that, to have access to the engineers and product managers and all that. So that's... You will go over like pros and cons of press camps, but it's kind of cool to be able to talk to the person that made the decision to do whatever on the bike. So yeah, you get the presentation and then a lot of times after that, it's time to go check out the bike and go ride. Um, depends how many days the press camps are for, but usually it's a couple days, a two day event, I'd say sometimes three. I just want to point out that you guys have never had a engine or like a brand or an engineer not make time for you, but there are a lot of media out there that aren't pink bike and that aren't are smaller or getting a start or, or, or serve a smaller market and bike brands and can't make their engineers available to every, you know, blogger in, in Southern Bavaria, you know, other, every Southern Bavarian freeriders blog, yeah. you know? So a, a media camp can be a good way to 
get all the birds stoned at once. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I've, I've been to some where we're sitting in a giant auditorium and it's like a four-hour presentation, you know, and everyone's, oh, my God. oh yeah, and everyone's taking notes and or pretending to take notes. And I've been to others that I would far prefer where it's like five people sitting on stools around whatever bike we're going to ride and there's an engineer there. And like Kaz said, a lot of times they have, like if it's a new shock, you know, they'll they'll have a cutaway of that shock. And the engineer who designed it is there pointing out little details on that shock. And I mean, that's the kind of thing you're not going to get if they just send you the product. So there's there's a lot of good reasons to go to these things for sure. Um, yeah, Kaz, you mentioned... After the presentation, we go and see the bikes usually. It's bike setup time. I want to ask you a question. How stressful is bike setup time? It always seems like a race. Uh, kind of. I feel like these days it's gotten better. But in the early days, like, you know, that, you know, say seven or eight years ago, the bikes weren't that great. And they'd still have super, depending on where you were, but someone had super narrow bars. They would have long stems and just you'd have to kind of like readapt. That was like when us over here in the Pacific Northwest had already kind of got used to long bars and short stems or wide bars and short stems and that didn't catch on everywhere at the same time. So you'd go to these camps and I brought a stem with me for a number of years just because oh, yeah. I get tired of showing up and having this like 70 mil stem. Like I just want my 50 or 40. So yeah, I wouldn't say it's these days it's pretty chill, but there were times where you'd have to like really work to get the bike to feel comfortable. Did you ever bring a dropper post with you in those old days? No, they, they always had droppers. Yeah. You're older than me. You've been doing this for yeah. For hundreds of years. I used I've to bring handlebar, like stem, years. and a dropper post, Kaz. <laughs> the mechanics hated me. <laughs> well, I wouldn't now. Yeah, and you can always cheat. The, if it's a narrow bar, you can always, if you have a single side lock on grips, you can scoot them out a little bit and kind of cheat to make them wider. But but yeah, I think your setup is it's just a thing. It just kind of It's kind of funny to always look around and see how what everyone's doing. There's always the one guy with like the tape measure and he's going crazy in the corner just getting oh, his yeah. thing so dialed. And you're like, you know, we're going to just ride these for a little bit, but... And then I was at a press camp where there was a, a journalist from somewhere else that uh, it was their second time ever using clipless pedals. They decided that oh, this nice. would be the appropriate time to try to learn clipless pedals. And that was special. They, yeah. What's the kookiest journalist move you've seen at a press camp? Uh, oh, I mean, my favorite is certain, <laughs> you know, nice. there's certain German magazines that really like the shot of like a, it's almost like a wheelie drop, kind of like pushing your bike off a little drop. So like a lot of these times at these camps, there will be a, a photographer and, you know, sit by the side of the trail and take some shots. So you have them for when you're writing your article, but there, there's a certain magazines that, that they want this shot. That's like, it's just a stereotypical, like fisheye front wheel up, pushing the bike off like a two foot drop. And they'll just hit that drop. Little handlebar like, uh, turn a thousand times. Yeah. They just go over and over and over and you're like, ah, okay. Like that's, that's great. Cass, <laughs> that's the great thing with photos. You don't have to be amazing. You just need to look amazing for a split second. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. I've been doing that for years, but yeah. Like, <laughs> but yeah, so I think, yeah, there's always kooky things. It's funny that I like the people smoke cigarettes. There was this one guy that used to show up and he would smoke cigarettes too. That was always funny. Like, like chain smoke. Yeah, chain smoke. You just be like off in the corner smoking cigarettes. Like, aren't we mountain biking? Like, how are you? Okay. Like, this is going to (laughs) be, I don't know. It's, I mean, it is fun to meet people out there. And I've met some, you know, people that are friends now, just met them out at these press camps and things. So there is a good sense. I think everybody, you know, even though we're competing different brands and stuff uh, or different, you know, media outlets, I don't think there's ever been like, like a full battle. You know, it's just kind of like friendly competition. You don't just hate the people. They're your buddies and ride and stuff. It, it might be a battle on the bike, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, I have yeah. a kook story first. <laughs> so there's this kooky media guy named Mike Levy, 
And he accidentally flew to a media camp a day too early in Europe. And then he got there and called the the media camp organizer and was like, hey, where are you guys? I'm at the airport. (laughs) (laughs) That was actually, do you guys remember the humbled video I did with Nino? Yeah, there was it was that that was for uh, that happened during uh, Scott yeah. press camp. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I flew there a day early and <laughs> nobody was there. Did you sleep at yeah. the airport? What did you do? No, I called my my loving and caring partner who well, I woke her up. She booked a hotel for me from back in Canada. <laughs> yeah. No. You couldn't book your own hotel? Um, the where I was, nothing was open. I couldn't get into anywhere. Nobody, I couldn't book anything online. No hotels were open. They wouldn't open the doors for me. There was no like hotels there. It was all like homes that had like places in them that you could rent. And it was embarrassing. I did the same thing when I left too. We left that press camp on the last day. The guy who was running the press camp, he was like, all right, guys, well, we'll run you down to town and then you could take the train to wherever you're going. And I, I'm used to be taken care of. I'm like, what do you mean where I'm going? I'm going home, ain't I? <laughs> I spent another day there. I didn't have anywhere to stay. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I had one I had one where I flew into Innsbruck and I was going somewhere else in Austria, I think. And so I, nobody was there. Same thing. No one's there. So I call. I was like, hey, what time's the shuttle coming? And they tell me the time and it's seven hours away. Like it's going to take seven hours for the shuttle to come pick me up. And I'm like, what am I going to do in Innsbruck? I'm so jet lagged. So I just found this little like clump of trees by the side of the airport and like set all my stuff up and just took a big nap. Like I just slept for like four hours just in the bushes. Like I'm pretty sure a homeless person had been there before, but Innsbruck's real clean. So it was fine. But like, I just like, so people were walking by on this path kind of near me and I'd just be like sleeping in the bushes because I didn't know what else to do. Let, let's talk about what it's like riding at press camps. It's all these media guys together. It's a bunch of dudes so usually. So it's just a fucking log jam. Like nothing but testosterone and dude mountain bikers. And we all like, we do know each other. Like we're all media people from different places in the world. And we know each other, but we're not like, like super tight or anything. So before we ride, it's always kind of awkward at first, you know? And then we get on the bike and what does everybody do? Kaz, what do they do? They pedal too hard. Everybody wants to go too hard right away. Would yeah. you agree? Yeah, that's lo- yeah, and you're on like trails you've never ridden and, and you are most of, most of you are jet lagged. So there's definitely a lot of weird, you kind of feel like you're riding underwater usually. You're just kind of like, what's yeah. happening? And uh, yeah, it just kind of depends how gnarly the trails are. And so there's like um, Sarah was talking about making sure that you pick the right trails. I think there is something to be said for not picking like crazy gnarly trails, at least for the first day, because everybody's just kind of like new bike, new trails, jet lag. It's a, a skill learning how to like not break yourself off on the first day sarah what's it like on the ones you've been to has it been a similar amount of like frenemy style competition or perfect way to put it (laughs) well what i was gonna say is and then they also send you to somewhere at altitude and you're from like squamish and Mm -hmm. then you can't breathe so that it's extra difficult i would say like the press releases or press camps that i went to with pink bike were kind of the opposite of the ones that you guys are talking about because i went to juliana and live press camps which were everybody was nice bikes they were it was actually very cool to have that many women in the bike industry like together in one room because well usually i'm outnumbered three to one (laughs) and that's a good ratio to be honest like in the bike industry um and so having you know, people from Liver Juliana and, you know, they try to get, you know, female technicians from SRAM and Rock Shocks and they'd get, you know, female photographer. And 
I mean, you know, there's something pretty cool about those experiences. And I mean, there's still a bit of competitiveness, you know, when you like get out on the trails, even <laughs> with a bunch. Of- I expect you, I expect you to destroy all the other media. Well, I know there. you're there from Pinkbike. You got some like, <laughs> yeah. you got some, I mean, it uh, says that in prove, your contract. Right? <laughs> so yeah, definitely. Uh, and then they've also got some of the professional riders there. So, you know, you're like, okay, I got it. Got to, you know, prove myself that I work for the world's biggest mountain bike publication. So yeah, definitely like very different, but kind of similar experiences where you want to prove yourself in a certain way. And I mean, also test the bike, which is what you're there for, but also prove yourself. So yeah. (laughs) That sounds way more fun than my press camp rides, which are usually like two to three days of us just half wheeling each other till we blow up. (laughs) <laughs> maybe it's just me that's doing it i don't know yeah, that's you <laughs> nobody else has yeah. ever thought about it I, i've been to a few i've been to a few press camps where they tie it around a race which i actually like like i went to well, i raced the whistler ews for like as part of a press camp one time and then also the new zealand enduro i think i've done that twice now at least been down there for two different things i think that's kind of fun when you can you know it takes longer but if you're there you can get a accustomed to the bike a little bit and then you do a race with it it's kind of a you know pretty unique trial by fire like you're gonna push it and yeah i kind of like that method of just being like another reason for you to be there in addition to learning about the new bike and trying it out yeah kaz what's the best press camp you've ever been to i mean my favorites happen basically here in town <laughs> like when yeah. people come visit me i love it like i <laughs> i like showing people where i live and the trails that i ride and we can ride all my favorite trails and then go to my favorite local restaurants and I can sleep in my own bed. From a test standpoint, that's really important too, right? Like it, as a, when you're doing testing, testing on your baseline trails yeah, it's, gives you better data. Yeah. It makes it easier, but I've been to, I really had some good times in New Zealand. Like the riding down there feels a lot like riding around here. And that always happens in you know March or so when it's still pretty wet. So getting out of town, go to New Zealand. Like I said, that New Zealand Enduro is pretty fun to race and that's some yeah amazing terrain and and a cool spot. So I think that's one of my favorite, favorite places. Kaz, have you ever been injured at a press camp? Yeah, nothing. Luckily, knock on wood, nothing like too, too gnarly. But in, I was in Portugal two or three years ago, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Three years ago. And so we were just riding this really rocky trail and I just ate shit, crashed, broke my helmet. And then I got this cut my, like near my ankle, like super bad. Probably definitely should have had stitches, but I didn't want to get stitches in a different country and I wanted to keep riding. So we just like, butterfly bandit bandaged it all up and like patched me all up so i could just keep riding for the next three days or whatever but it was at the very beginning of the trip so that was kind of annoying so that was the worst crash i think i've ever had i usually try to i mean you know you can't go 110 percent of these things you're in a whole different country you're neutral all that stuff but yeah crashes happen because you're a testing product and you're doing things but i think that's my worst yeah that was a pretty bad crash yeah i have a rule this is 75 percent rule when you're at a press camp, you don't try harder than 75%. But because I have a penis, I constantly forget about that rule. <laughs> it's not good. Sarah, have you ever been injured at a press camp or had a rider injured? I haven't. I do know that I was supposed to go to, I can't remember what the bike was, maybe the Rubion, like the Juliana Rubion launch. And I was all set to go. They'd booked all my flight, accommodation, everything. And I think it was two days before I was supposed to leave that I broke my arm. So I had to call them and cancel couldn't just you know show up and be like yeah Yeah. here i help me tie my hair (laughs) that's a good excuse (laughs) um yeah so i don't think we had anybody get injured i remember somebody got a tick uh we were in california for the optic launch and somebody 
got a tick and was pretty panicked about that, but I never got any follow-up, so I guess... That's not an injury. (laughs) Ticks are scary. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's because I'm from, like, my aunt used to live in old Lyme, Connecticut, which is like where Lyme disease was created. So as kids, we were just like covered with ticks. Yeah, they made it there. So ticks don't, I mean, I don't like ticks. I don't want Lyme disease. I, uh, I got to show John Tomek my kneecap one time. I have that story. (laughs) I'm sure he appreciated that. (laughs) Kaz, you've ridden in South Mountain, on South Mountain in Arizona before, I assume, Phoenix. Mm -hmm. So for those who haven't, it's basically coral. Like it's the most like the roughest scariest pointiest rock you do not want to fall there and this was an early press camp i think i had been with pink bike for like a year or two or something like that and back then i was a fat fuck i was out of shape i was not good and i remember we went to arizona for a new tomac this is when tomac was still around a new tomac mountain bike and joel smith was running the camp joel smith is an animal he likes to pedal hard uh, so he invited people that like to pedal hard. So I got blown out the back. Like I couldn't even keep the slowest group in sight, which is super embarrassing, you know? And I think that's probably why. This is free ride Levier. This is free ride Levier. Like platform pedals. Yeah. Yeah. yeah super. Showed up with it with a dropper post. Yeah. And <laughs> crazy stuff. I could. Joel, Levy was the coup. Yeah, oh, he was yeah, the, he the coup. He was sure. like, what are you, what are you doing? Like I was so embarrassed. And I think this is probably part of the reason why i like to pedal so hard at press camps now because i was like literally like well they were they were they would ride for half an hour and be 10 minutes ahead of me so anyway so that's just to set the scene so i wasn't doing well and then on the last riding day there we're coming down near the end of national trail there's these big wood steps near the end down into the parking lot i'm on this tomac thing john tomac is literally standing in the parking lot looking up at me as i'm coming down you know, it's all coming true. My dreams. Kaz, I flipped over the handlebars so hard, like into this rock minefield. And I had to cut them. I could see my kneecap, like this big flap of skin. I never got stitches. I just pushed it back. But yeah, and I remember getting on my bike, pretending like nothing was wrong and rolling down and like rolling up beside John Tomac and be like, oh, that was a, pretty, that was a big crash. I'm okay though. Everything's fine. <laughs> I think when I got home, I didn't, I couldn't ride a bike for something like a month afterwards. Yeah, I mean, obviously, everybody brings out their 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 stars and athletes and stuff to these things. Mm -hmm. Who and you just mentioned Stevie and Tomac. Who else have you ridden with? Nino, Nino, Nino. Who was the most? Who did you? Were you the most starstruck? Okay. Um, if anybody, I was. No, I don't get starstruck by anybody. They're just mountain bikers. Like I don't actually care. It was super cool to see Nino, though. <laughs> I will say. <laughs> um, I, another time for a trek camp. Uh, this is when they had that Penske shock technology going on in their rear shocks, and we went to their Penske's NASCAR headquarters, and we got to tour around the garage. It was insane to see that stuff. Another time, I was at. Um, bell's headquarters in where is that brian scotts valley scotts valley thanks brian and (laughs) uh, they had jensen buttons brawn helmet that he wore when he won the world championship there and i got to hold it that was absolutely amazing so those two things yeah but no i haven't been starstruck what about you kaz uh i think riding the shore with simmons is always good that's like that's just like 
yeah i mean or, you know early 2000s me like looking up to him and then now just getting to ride with him and so i'm in a couple of camps so that's always fun and then i don't know like i remember trying to oh riding with danny hart years ago on a mm. i think it was a cross-country bike but so it's so fun like he's actually was he was we were climbing some steep stuff in california and watching him climb was pretty good yeah who else yeah i mean everybody's just people so it's kind of nice there nobody's oh, like dude i rode with jeremy mcgrath it was oh, at a cool. fox camp fox I think it was a Fox thing. We did an enduro race in Oregon. Yeah, with Jeremy McGrath. And I remember there was uh, one night we were hanging out in the kitchen. We were doing Supercross trivia and Jeremy McGrath was asking the questions and giving us points. It was insane. It was amazing. (laughs) I think what we're learning here is that if you want to make mountain bike media starstruck, don't bring mountain bikes. <laughs> just bring Jensen Button's helmet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't even know who Jensen Button is, so maybe don't do that for me. There was one other story that I wanted to share with you guys. I went to a press camp one time. I'm not going to say the brand or anybody that was involved. They took us on some 100% illegal trails, which probably not a great idea considering we're like taking photos and doing videos and stuff, of course, you know, but it gets worse. We're near the bottom. We could see. The vehicles at the bottom through the trees, there's a ranger waiting there for us to come out because we had used vehicles with like shuttle pads and stuff on the tailgate. So this ranger is just waiting for us there. And we literally had to like hide in the bush for 20 minutes and wait for this guy to leave before we could exit. Wow. Press camps. <laughs> well, then also, huh. like, what was their plan if somebody like hurt themselves? Like, what do you do on an illegal trail if somebody gets hurt? Like. You cart them out. All these guys with all this testosterone (laughs) flying down the trail on this new bike that they've never ridden before. Like, you gotta have a plan for like if somebody gets hurt. That's exactly what happens. (laughs) You just take the bike away and say they're hiking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, we're almost done, but I did want to ask you guys one more serious question that I don't think we could skip if we're talking about press camps. As media people, some of us would even call us journalists, although I wouldn't go that far. Do you think that we should be accepting these all-expenses-paid trips around the world to see and ride new bikes? It doesn't look good on outwardly, does it, Brian? I don't know. Probably people can answer that in the in the comments. Um, I'm sort yeah. I don't think any of us can really answer that, and I think we can only really speak for ourselves, right? Like, obviously, we're <laughs> this is funny. We're so privileged that it doesn't affect us. Like we're so, we have so many good trails here, so many bikes, and we're lucky enough to be able to have access to all the people that we want yeah. anytime. We Our want. size means that we could ask brands yeah. to just send us these stuff and people. So, so like when we say that, Oh, you know, it doesn't we're, we're I think everybody can see, like we're not particularly impressed by the press camps generally. So I don't, I'm pretty sure it doesn't affect our, coverage especially like we don't do the thing where we say like oh it was a review mm-hmm. from the two that. days i had on the I bike at a press camp that right but like, i understand why they're doing it though why they're saying that you know it's just seo yeah. it's that's why like people ask us why we accept sticking to embargoes the reason is that i think there's value to the readers if we didn't have embargoes it just becomes a race to the bottom for google seo so who can say they have a review first if we get the bike the same day as it launches to the public, then every crappy mountain bike, quote unquote, journalist puts new whatever review in the title to get just to get those numbers. Mm-hmm. 
and that's not good. So yeah, I like I like embargoes. Yeah, the thing about that is like you just talked about, you know, a SRAM camp and a Fox camp. If you go to all the camps from all the different brands, then I feel like there's not really a bias that, you know, I met this person, I like this person better, this person took me to a cooler place. So I feel like because we are able to go to so many different camps, it's it's not really so much a question of bias as maybe if you go to one camp a year and then that's the best bike ever. So can we change the question a bit to should press camps happen at all instead of should we go to press camps? I think that to me is a bigger question because obviously I think there are some, they, I think they are at least a symptom of some bad shit and man, the expense, the environmental impacts, which I know Levy cares a lot about <laughs> and just the, the frustration, like it just, it goes on and on. I don't, I think that most press camps don't need to happen. Yeah, I'd, I'd take I'd dig in this a little more. I think that, I mean, the last couple of years of having all the COVID issues kind of showed that they don't really have to happen as much because we couldn't travel. But if you look, we've covered everything that's come out in, the, in a really similar manner to as if we'd been flown to some exotic place and ridden the bike. But I do think that in the future, some of these smaller scale events are a nice way to do it. If the if the brand travels to the journalist or a couple of journalists, I mean, you know, all of us that write about mountain bikes tend to ride where there's pretty good mountain biking. So, you know, whether it's pink bike or another outlet, um, if you can travel to them, you know, bring your PM, if you can, or your, your engineer or somebody, you know, meet with a journalist ride. I think those smaller scale ones, a few people makes a lot more sense than having to try to get 50 people to fly over to another country. PM is product manager. Um, and there's a, there's a good, has anybody else here been to one of those bike connection little mini camps? Yeah, I've been to that. I actually really like the, there's a, a, what did you think? Yeah, I think it's cool. It's a, yeah, it's almost like a small scale outdoor trade show so there's maybe i mean when i was there there's probably yeah. six or eight brands or so and you could kind of like try their stuff in a few days on some good trails so i think things like that or even yeah. you know whistler crankworks is a great time for something mm-hmm. like that where everybody's already yeah. there there's another event going but if you could kind of you know sneak off and check out something new for a few laps or a day or so i think that tying things in with that can work but overall i just think the smaller scale stuff tends to at least for me that's kind of what i prefer like i still like meeting the people that worked on the bike and getting that insight but i don't think mm-hmm. i need to fly to patagonia to, to ride the bike but i will sometimes because it's cool <laughs> <laughs> thank god for sacrificing for us Cass. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think what i like about those bike connection is a is an agency that puts on this little mini mini trade show sometimes in sometimes in like masa maritima italy and sometimes in other places is that you as a as a tech editor can go to a thing and you get to meet all the, all the people that you need to connect with and you can spend, you know, for your three or four days there, you can get a lot more out of it because like, we're not getting real ride impressions from these camps. I think maybe we kind of didn't say that before, but like, I don't think anybody can give a real verdict on a bike. After not a, a verdict, a press, but, but, I can verdict, but we could find yeah, out if something's wrong. Like if, you know, yes. bike is yeah. too yeah. linear or the angles suck, we mm. know. Yeah, if I spent totally. four days That's racing right. it in New Zealand, I could tell you a pretty good amount about a bike. But yeah, a lot of times we we, we we call them first rides for a reason, like we've been saying. It's, they are just, yeah, the first initial impressions and then we typically get the bikes for longer. But I guess on the other flip side, one thing that is nice is when we can get the bikes just ahead of time and actually have a review for when they launch. So like the, we were talking about the Heckler earlier. I've had that bike for almost three months now. Um, you know, one of the guys from Santa Cruz came up, we went out for a ride checked it out and he left it with me and I've been able to ride it ever since and put the review up, which that's always nice. Obviously not always possible, but it's kind of cool to be able to have that, um, to take that route as well. Yeah, I definitely, I do want to mention that before Corona, 
Pinkbike, we were sort of making making an effort to do that far more often than go to press camps. We were asking companies to either just send us the bike early, and if they wanted to send an engineer or a PM down with the bike that to us, that's fine too. But we were making an effort for a couple of years before Corona showed up to just get bikes sent to us. And maybe that's because I'm too scared to fly. <laughs> either way, whatever the reason, it was nice, you know, and I think we're going to continue doing that, like Kaz mentioned. Yeah, I think we just made a, a rule that, like, in general it's we're only considering travel for for bikes because like we were getting like requests to attend camps for like gloves yeah. and stuff yeah like a stem press camp here, not really that fun yeah, it's like come on guys i'll go to taiwan like, for any product if anybody's listening if you've got a new valve stem cap I'm, i'll go to taiwan for that <laughs> <laughs> fair but yeah okay one last question before we wrap this up in the car world sometimes i see like a little disclaimer you know the the car journal journalist got flown somewhere to drive some freaking Ferrari, whatever. And they'll have a little disclaimer in italics that said, you know, Ferrari flew me here and paid for me to stay here for a couple of days and blah, 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 blah. How come media, bike media doesn't do that stuff? Should we have a disclaimer that says, hey, Trek or SRAM flew us across the world? I mean, do you think it's important? I don't mind. I just don't. I think that there's a difference between like it's it's even one step further removed from like sometimes we cover products that from people that advertise on pink bike as does every we do have a list of advertisers on the side of our yeah so we disclaim we disclose the advertiser list i mean often in a first look yeah somebody will say where they where they were riding the bike and i guess there's an assumption made that we didn't fly ourselves there but i don't know maybe we just assume that the readers know that we were flown to this place if we're testing a bike for two days in an an exotic location i think our readers kind of know that (laughs) somebody tell us i i'm i don't mind (laughs) like if if we want to put that in as a policy i don't mind i don't i don't think it would like remove anything from reading it just might be annoying if we forget once and then we're like oh shit yeah i could see it maybe adding more weight to the first ride article for people like bitter biker maybe i don't know Maybe. Yeah, let us know in the yeah, comments. Yeah, bitter biker. Yeah, bitter biker. Let us know in the comments. Like, should we be having disclaimers or or not? Anyways, let's wrap this up with comment gold. This is from our last podcast about trade shows. Um, it also applies to this podcast about press camps, though. This is from uh, Jim Thirty One RCR. He says, "I really hope this podcast doesn't destroy the story I have in my head." I picture Levy and Kaz at trade shows being wined and dined while they receive kickbacks from the wheel and axle standard cabals. 100% accurate. Yeah. <laughs> 100% accurate. I think the only thing they missed is that there's also the derailleur, the anti-gearbox cabal. That's me mostly. I run that cabal. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gearbox suck. That's it for our chat about press camps, and that's it for this episode of the Pink Bike Podcast. And we've had a busy week recording these things, and there will be two more episodes this week. On Friday, you can listen to Henry and I spend an hour talking about his time as a World Cup mechanic and all the wild shit he saw, including bent direct mount stems and gluing on fork dials. You're going to have to fake for fake ones. You're going to have to listen to that. (laughs) And then on Saturday, you can hear me chat to Lachlan Morton about racing in Europe as a pro, giving it all up and about how his crazy bike adventures relit a fire under his ass. 
And if you've got questions about press camps from this podcast, put them down in the comment section of this episode on Pink Bike, and we'll try to answer them in a future show. We'll see you there.